When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper, and we do start with the breaking news. A jury has just awarded nearly $1 billion in damages to Sandy Hook elementary families and an FBI agent in the Connecticut defamation trial against Alex Jones. Eight families and a first responder sued the far-right conspiracy theorist for the lies he told about the 2012 school massacre. This trial is the second of three against Jones concerning the Sandy Hook massacre and comes after a Texas jury decided in August that Jones and his company should pay nearly 50 million, but the Connecticut jury nearly a billion. Let's go straight to CNN's Bryn Gingrass outside the courtroom. Bryn, you were in there when these really big figures were read out loud. Walk us through the jury's decision. Big figures, John, leading up to the announcement of these numbers, even the jurors were taking a deep sigh, and there was just so much pressure and tension inside that room. And then what a release from these family members when those numbers were being read and tallied. I can tell you, as we've talked about, Robbie Parker, he has received the biggest amount of this nearly $1 million, $1 billion, rather, uh, awarding of compensatory damages. And he just put his hands in his face. He started crying. And John, something I just want to tell you is that these family members have been coming to this trial for several weeks now here in Waterbury, listening through testimony, doing their own testimony, recounting where they were when they learned the news about their loved ones dying. And they themselves have become this family. And that is what I saw in the courtroom as these numbers were being read. They would be fist bumping each other. They were crying for each other. I can tell you uh, that uh, David Wheeler, who, if you remember, Alex Jones said uh, he was actually the FBI agent Bill Aldenberg and they spread that all around that they were crisis actors. They weren't really who they said they were. He cried for Bill Aldenberg for the amount that he received. Bill Aldenberg was not here today. He has been here most of the time, though. So I just want to really highlight that this was such a release, such a validation for these family members who have been really living through hell waiting for this verdict to come in, and now they have an idea of how much Alex Jones and his company will pay for the damages uh, that they caused, the emotional distress that they caused him. Them. That's right. They've been dealing with the pain for nearly 10 years and also waging this fight for yeah. nearly 10 years. Brent Gingrass in Connecticut. Brent, thank you very much. I want to bring in attorney Mark Iglarsh now. And Mark, the jury has ordered Jones to pay, and I just want to reiterate this, nearly one billion dollars in damages. What does that tell you? What's your big takeaway from this? Well, it tells us that while there are limitations to our free speech, you cannot lie. You cannot go way over the line and say lies about someone and inflict emotional distress upon people. They're punishing him. This wasn't just, okay, a couple million here. They're sending a message that while we all enjoy under the First Amendment wide latitude to speak freely, you can't lie. You can't intentionally afflict emotional distress on people. And through that verdict, they're speaking very loudly.
hearing just seconds ago that the attorney for Alex Jones did say that they will appeal the jury's verdict here. I guess appeal aside, of course, you say, will these people, will these victims see any of the money that the jury just awarded? It's extremely unlikely. He's already been tagged in another jurisdiction for a large amount. We didn't think that any of the people would see that money. The fact that now we're close to a billion dollars, you can't squeeze water from a rock. This guy doesn't have it. And he will tie them up in the appellate division for many, many years. And then ultimately, if and when this verdict is ratified, he's going to pull out his pockets and go, I don't have it. And uh, and there's no debtor's prison. That said, this is still a huge win. It's sending a message that what he said was wrong. And anybody who continues to advocate what he spewed from his lips, the evil, the hatred, the lies. Well, those people can no longer say those things either because it's unlawful. What he was saying for years is illegal. It's not constitutionally protected. Uh, And again, these families will tell you they were not doing this for the money. But really, Alex Jones can get out of one way or another paying any money. You think he'll pay nothing? After all this is said and done? Well, I don't know about nothing. Again, it will be determined what he is able to pay. Ultimately, if he doesn't have it, unfortunately, in the civil arena, there is no debtor's prison. You've been ordered to pay that money. You don't have it. Well, you're going to go to this facility for for years. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And I think the families know that. I know that their lawyers have managed their expectations. I know that their lawyers have told them, look, This verdict will speak volumes. This is more about a moral victory. And I think that they're probably celebrating that victory tonight. It is a huge statement from this jury, to be sure, and only the second of three defamation trials against Alex Jones. Mark Argosh, counselor, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. My my pleasure. Thank you. All right, turning now to our politics lead. In tomorrow's highly anticipated hearing by the January 6th committee, Sources tell CNN you can expect the panel to argue that former President Donald Trump remains a clear and present danger to democracy, especially ahead of the 2024 election. And those sources say you will likely see new evidence, including Secret Service records and videotaped accounts from new witnesses interviewed since the last hearing more than two months ago. Plus, committee member Zoe Lofgren tells CNN tomorrow's hearing will showcase evidence of ties between the extremists who attacked the Capitol and Trump world. CNN's Sarah Murray reports on what the committee members say they have uncovered and what you must know. The January 6th committee making its closing argument ahead of the November midterms. There's some new material that, you know, I found as we got into it pretty surprising. Sources say they're aiming to drive home that former President Donald Trump still poses a danger to democracy, using a mix of new evidence and reminders of their prior work. It's really demonstrated the the breadth and the depth um, of the effort to overturn the election and to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And it was an effort that at every step of the way, um, the former president was deeply involved in, personally engaged in. While live witnesses are not expected, members are preparing to showcase previously unseen emails from Secret Service, which recently turned over more than a million communications, as well as new video. Since the last hearing in July, the president's stolen election lies provoked that mob to attack the Capitol. The committee interviewed Trump cabinet members, including former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. And they interviewed Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. We still have significant 
information that we've not shown to the public that's available to us. Members hinting the hearing could also highlight the role of longtime Trump ally Roger Stone. What they're assuming is that the election will be normal. The election will not be normal. And ties between Trump's circle and violent extremist groups. The mob was led by uh, some extremist groups. They plotted in advance what they were going uh, to do. And uh, those individuals uh, were known uh, to people in uh, the Trump orbit. The committee reconvening in public for the first time since the FBI searched Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate and since a DOJ probe into efforts to subvert the 2020 election has intensified. With midterms less than a month away, a key focus is Trump's continued efforts I ran twice. I won twice. To spread the falsehood that the 2020 the election was stolen and ensure election deniers take office. Votes. We've gotten a much better handle on the continuing clear and present danger that confronts the people of America. Now, the committee has an opportunity to make news on a number of different fronts in tomorrow's hearing. But even after that hearing, there is going to be some unfinished business. You know, this is a committee that still has to uh, release its final report. Members say that they are working on that and they still have to make a decision about whether they are going to move forward with any criminal referrals to the Justice Department, John. All right, Sarah Murray, thank you very much for that. I want to bring in CNN's Jamie Gangel. Jamie, what are your sources telling you about the committee's plans for this big hearing tomorrow? Tomorrow's hearing, John, is going to be all roads lead to Donald Trump. I'm told the committee is going to bring us up to date on new information they have uncovered over the summer. I was told by one source familiar with the committee's work that they have a great deal of new material. We don't expect to see any live witnesses, as Sarah said, but I think it's going to be very interesting. The uh, Secret Service emails, communication, and new video about January 6th, John. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, we, we, we may hear from Trump cabinet members right. as well, Jamie. What's going on there? Right. So we there are a couple of things. We know that several Trump cabinet members were interviewed over the summer who we've, we've never seen testimony from before. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, who, as we know, resigned on January 6th. Uh, I think that we may see testimony from uh, one or all of them. And then again, you know, John, there's the question we just uh, saw Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, go in and give evidence, do an interview with the committee. Will we hear any of that? And where do you think the committee goes from here after this final hearing before the midterms? You know, as Sarah said, we're still waiting to see, is there a formal invite for Mike Pence or Donald Trump? There's the question of criminal referrals. But I want to stress this. I talked to multiple sources uh, familiar with the committee's work last night, and they told me the committee is still doing interviews. They are going through evidence. I'm told there could be more hearings yet to come, John. All right, Jamie Gangel, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. No one works harder on the reporting here and watches these hearings with the eagle eye. Thank you very much. Our Democratic Congressman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State joins me now. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. I want to get your reaction to Jamie's reporting that the committee could unveil testimony from Trump loyalists, including former Cabinet Secretaries Mike Pompeo and Steve Mnuchin. What will you be listening for from them? 
Well, I think, uh, John, it's great to see you. And I think that Jamie's absolutely right. This committee is being incredibly thorough. They are not going to leave anything on the table. And I think that they are going through methodically every single person and more and more are appearing as people see courage in other people. It inspires courage in them as well. And so I think that, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what they'll unveil tomorrow, but I do think that what they're doing is they're just continuing to stitch up more and more tightly this case against Donald Trump, which all of us knew um, even before the hearing started. We knew that there was a clear tie between uh, the big lie, the insurrection, and the continued clear and present danger that he that he poses to the country. I think the committee has put all the pieces in place to really connect that and show it to the American people. So you yourself have been the target of extremist threats of violence. So when the committee says that Donald Trump is a clear and present danger, as we understand the committee will, how do you see that playing out in real life right now? Well, John, I spoke out about what happened to me because I felt that it was important for people to understand what is happening at our doorsteps, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and how this is directly connected. What happened to me is directly connected to Donald Trump, his work to undermine democracy, to undermine government, trust in the state, and also to dehumanize people, all leading to the violence that we saw take place on January 6th. As you know, I was in that gallery on January 6th. Mm -hmm. I feared for my life that day, as many people did. Capitol Police officers lost their lives on that day. And that violence has continued. He has not backed off one iota from the the assertion, the lie that he won the election, that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. And the thing that really strikes me, John, is that 50 percent, actually 60 percent, over 50 percent, 60 percent of voters across America have an election denier on their ballot. That is really stunning. It shows us where the Republican Party has gone and it shows us how important it is for voters to understand the stakes and to really turn out in November. Let's talk about November and let's talk about the man who did win in 2020, President Joe Biden. A a new CNN poll shows that his job approval is up, up, but it's still low at 44 percent. What ripple effect do you think that sentiment might have on the Democratic Party in the midterms? Well, we're all working very hard. I just was out in Michigan and Minnesota. I'm going to Georgia, Pennsylvania, New York, going across the country. Um, The president's approval rating does matter. There's no question about that. The higher it is, the better it is for us. But I will also tell you that we have amazing candidates who know their districts and we have a lot of results. You know, sometimes I feel like we run as an opposition party. We are certainly putting forward what the stakes are. But this year, John, we also get to be a proposition party with results to show the narrowest margins in the history of our country. And we've delivered on climate change. We've made costs for Medicare, people who are on Medicare, for drug prices go down. We're addressing uh, climate change, inflation, health care, all of these things that allow people to feel better about their lives and their opportunities and to feel like they've got a government that's really working for them. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, great to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. And we do have this special programming note, special coverage of tomorrow's January 6th committee hearing will begin at noon Eastern. That's right here on CNN.
And ahead, what might be the best gauge of opinion in Georgia in the wake of the abortion drama surrounding Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker? How much do voters actually care? And fighting back, how Ukraine is shooting down Russian air attacks and turning to allies with a special weapons request. Plus, how bad could a lawyer be? Well, just ask a man serving decades behind bars for a crime he says he did not commit. Topping our world lead, a third straight day of Russia's unrelenting missile assault on Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is touting his army's high rate of missile and drone interceptions. He says more than half of Russia's attempted strikes were shot down yesterday. Unfortunately, though, some of Putin's rockets are still getting through. CZN's Frederick Plykin reports on the latest destruction from Ukraine. And we do want to warn viewers, some of the images in this report are disturbing. Another mass casualty attack in Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Bodies strewn across a market in the eastern town of Divka. Just one reason why the Ukrainians disagree with President Joe Biden's remark from the interview with CNN's Jake Tapper that Putin is a rational actor. The advisor to Ukraine's presidential administration tells me he believes the opposite is true. He is irrational. He is effective. He takes a lot of decisions from an emotional position and without a deep understanding of what is going on. Every decision that President Putin makes is a mistake. As jets patrolled the sky over Ukraine's capital, Russia continued its blitz of missile attacks on Ukrainian cities, hitting the town of Zaporizhia and targeting critical infrastructure, especially power plants. The advisor telling me Ukraine is working hard to repair the damage and appreciates support from the U.S. and its allies. Our partners all reacted very quickly to what happened on Monday the 10th. All our official partners, including the United States, announced that the types of strikes were inhumane because they consciously targeted civilian infrastructure. Ukraine's military says it's able to shoot down many of the missiles and drones Russia fires at its territory, but only has old Soviet-era surface-to-air systems and not enough of them. At a meeting in Brussels, NATO made clear providing Ukraine with modern anti-aircraft missiles is a top priority. This contact group stands united and determined. We will continue to boost Ukraine's defensive capabilities for today's urgent needs and for the long haul. The Ukrainians say they continue to make headway against Russia's forces on the battlefield, Kiev saying its forces took back several key villages in the south of the country. And the presidential advisor telling me, despite Vladimir Putin's nuclear threat, Ukraine must prevail. Look, the threat of the use of nuclear weapons is not the problem of Ukraine. In any case, we cannot stop our counteroffensive. In any case, we cannot give up our territory to Russian control because it will mean an endless war for us. It will be impossible to rebuild the country. Meanwhile, John, there's new problems at Europe's largest nuclear power plant, the Zaporizhia power plant. Of course, it's right near the front line currently held by the Russians. Well, today, the power supply to that power plant was interrupted once again. That, of course, is really dangerous for some of the critical systems that that power plant needs, especially the cooling system. 
diesel emergency generators uh, were turned on. And by now, the International Atomic Energy Agency says that the power to that power plant has been restored. But the threat of some sort of accident happening there continues to be high, John. Yeah. Emergency generators powering a power plant, a nuclear plant, doesn't sound like a good thing. Frederick Plekin in Kiev, thank you so much, Fred. Over in Russia, Putin came out swinging at opening day of the Russian Energy Forum. He blamed Ukraine for the Crimea bridge attack, denied withholding gas supplies to the European Union, and blamed the EU for creating its own economic crisis. Seen as Matthew Chance is in Moscow. Matthew, Putin says the ball is in the EU's court to turn on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Did he mention the recent damage to that pipeline? Um, he did. He, he said it was an act of international terrorism. He said that those who perpetrated it were attempting to permanently sever uh, the link between Russia uh, and Europe. But you're right. He did offer the prospect of the relationship, the energy relationship between Russia uh, and, uh, and Europe being restored. He said, as you mentioned, it was up to the Europeans to uh, to turn the tap on the gas because there was part of that pipeline, he said, that was still intact. It still had gas at sufficient pressure inside. And all the Europeans had to do, he said, was just to turn it on and to take that Russian gas. It's interesting because that's still Vladimir Putin's state of mind, despite the fact that there are missiles raining on a daily basis now on Ukraine. Still, he still thinks that there's a prospect of the situation returning to the energy dependency of the past and of the sort of status quo ante of before what they call here the special military operation, John. (laughs) Matthew, President Biden told Jake Tapper he has no intention of meeting with Putin at the G20 unless it's about Brittany Griner's release or something like that. Has the Kremlin responded? Uh, Well, the Kremlin have simply said, look, you know, there are no uh, plans underway. Neither the United States nor Russia has offered any bilateral meetings at at that high level. And so there's nothing, no prospect of them talking at the moment. But they said if there was a prospect of talks, they, they wouldn't reject it. Um, and so, look, there's a lot of speculation. There's the backdrop to that, that there could be, um, you know, if Vladimir Putin and President Biden go to the G20 summit in Indonesia, in Bali, Indonesia uh, next month, there's a possibility they could talk on the sidelines of, of that forum. But the Kremlin so far have not committed that their, that their president, President Putin, uh, will be attending that Bali forum uh, at this point. But you know, obviously a lot of speculation that at some point in the future, there's going to have to be a serious conversation between the presidents of these two countries. Matthew Chance in Moscow, terrific reporting. Thank you so much, Matthew. And this just in, the U.N. General Assembly overwhelmingly approved a resolution telling Russia that its annexation, its sham annexation of four Ukrainian zones is illegal and not valid. So that just coming from the United Nations. Next, how midterm elections have played out in past years when a president's approval rating has been near President Biden's right now. In our politics lead, President Biden is kicking off a four-day tour in the West today, campaigning for Democrats in Colorado, California, and Oregon. Notably, though, he's staying away from the key battleground states of Arizona and Nevada out of concerns he could hurt Democrats in tough races for Senate and governor. But in a positive sign for the president, and everything is relative, a new CNN poll has his job approval now at 44 percent. That's up from 38 percent over the summer. Let's discuss. Hani Malika Henderson, nice yes, to see you. Yes, good to see you, too. Let me start with you. Yeah. So the Senate candidates in Arizona and Nevada kind of avoiding 
President Biden. Tim Ryan in Ohio on a debate stage did everything he could to distance mm-hmm. himself from Joe Biden. How much of a negative do Democrats see the president right now? Listen, 44 percent, that's uh, at a high. In some ways, he's been able to, uh, I think, have Democrats rally around him a bit more. Uh, but it's still not enough if you are campaigning in these states that are essentially red states, right, or purple states, if you're thinking about uh, Nevada, Ohio, a red, red state, and it's a red year. So you have all of these candidates trying to really talk about their bipartisan bona fides. I mean, you've got, for instance, uh, Warnock in Georgia talking more about the work he's done with Ted Cruz uh, than any work he's He's done with Biden because those are the voters, uh, the sort of swing voters that they need to really get. So, listen, I think it's a sign of a healthy campaign that they're able to be this nimble and kind of keep Joe Biden uh, at a distance, but also sort of try to rally Democrats, but also think about those independent voters. You know, Stuart Stevens, if you look at where Joe Biden's approval rating is, it's right around where Barack Obama's and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan's were at this stage of their first term. And there's one thing all three of those guys have in common which is that they won re-election. However, there's a second thing they all have in common, which is they all lost a lot of seats. They lost a yep. lot of seats in their first midterms. So is that inevitable to an extent? Well, it's only three times in the last 125 years, I think, that the party in power gained seats. The last time was 2002, and I worked on that race. Um, we were able to nationalize it around domestic security. Um, I Look, um, I think what's going on here is that the, the world is very different than it used to be. So you have Donald Trump and you have a large group of the Republican Party that doesn't believe that Joe Biden is a legal president. So for Democrats to win, I think it needs to be a referendum on democracy and a referendum on Trumpism. And having Joe Biden there uh, doesn't necessarily deliver that message. You don't want this to be a referendum on Joe Biden. I mean, ultimately, if this is a race about uh, inflation, a race about gas prices, that's a hard race to win. I think there's a race that they can win, which is about democracy and about the threat uh, that they pose to the country, because we really are in unique times. So I think that the greater the stakes, the better Democrats will do. It'll increase turnout. Um, so I, I think you got to make a state by state decision whether or not to do it. I think the Biden uh, organization is playing this right. They're not putting pressure on anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's very difficult to compare this race to what our traditional politics has been before. Things have changed. Do you think that's? I, I do. Listen, I think everybody's absolutely right. You do it on a state by state basis. I think you know Bernie Sanders is right in his op-ed the other day that that even though abortion is very important and should be front and center, we should be able to talk about other issues like gas prices. Don't cede ground to that. You saw Tim Ryan do that in his debate the other day with Vance, not ceding ground on a number of issues, including law enforcement and the fact that threats to democracy are polling so high, you have to be able to talk about that. I don't think Joe Biden is good at that in every place all the time, certainly not in a lot of the states that that you mentioned, Nia. Um, But one of the things that I want to be clear about is that it shouldn't be about Joe Biden not doing the job we elected him to do. He actually is. He's brought us back to a place of normalcy, at least coming directly from the White House. And even though Democrats may not have gotten everything they wanted, I think a lot feel that they've gotten more than they thought they would from a policy perspective in this first term. So I do think there's enough for Democrats to talk about. But, it, you know, based on those nuances and some of those policy issues, it may not work in every place. Let's talk about a couple specific Senate races here. In Senate, obviously, much more case by case mm-hmm. than the House, which sometimes follows national trends. I want to start in Georgia, where Herschel Walker did a sit-down interview with Lindsey Davis on ABC News. And, and he came out with sort of a new line of defense yeah about these allegations that he paid or was asked, you know, we paid for for an abortion. Listen. 
Are you saying a flat-out denial to any knowledge of an abortion, or is it flat possible out denial, it happened no, and you don't Flat-out denial, lie. Lie, lie, lie. And you know what's sad about it? He had, uh, what was it, a receipt and had a check and had all that. He hadn't shown anything. He hadn't shown me having a, saying something about an abortion. And that's, that's what's terrible. He's just saying it never happened. And I do want to point out there's a new poll out of Georgia today, which we should look at right now, which has Raphael Warnock, this is Quinnipiac poll, up seven there. But this line that, no, nothing to see here didn't happen at all, how tenable is that for Walker? You know, listen, I think the worry that Republicans have about Walker is precisely interviews like this, where it's a flat-out denial. He's essentially calling the mother of his 10-year-old child a liar uh, in that interview are more shoes to drop? Does she want to come out and add to this story? I think that's the problem, that Walker himself isn't the best messenger. He, for instance, has been trying to say, well, he's a born-again Christian. Uh, I guess he's born again and again and again, because a lot of the uh, claims that she is making happened after he was a born-again Christian. So I think that's the problem. Listen, I think this is going to hurt his race. It's You can see that sometimes in the polling. I think the question is, how much does it hurt his race? We've seen things like how Happen, uh, this happened before. I think what we haven't seen is a son come out and denounce a father in that mm-hmm. way. Um, and, you know, sort of there isn't really people really rallying behind Herschel Walker who know him. Members of his church, for instance, a pastor, anyone, right, a wife. And I think that is hurting his uh, explanation if, as well. If I can, I want to turn to the Pennsylvania Senate race and John Fetterman, who also gave an interview And during this interview, he explained why, how, in order to sit down, he asked for closed captioning so he could read the questions because he has auditory processing issues from the stroke that he had. Listen to this. I use captioning, so that's really the major major, uh, challenge. And every now and then I'll miss a word, every now and then. uh, Or sometimes I'll maybe mush two words together. But uh, as soon as I have captioning, I'm able to understand exactly what's being asked. Stuart Basil, how much of an issue do you think this will end up being in Pennsylvania? Well, that's a good question. Um, To me, this is a continuation of this trend in Republican politics. You know, Donald Trump ran for president mocking a disabled reporter. It's um, an extraordinary um, cruelty that's being shown by the Republican Party. So here's someone who had a stroke. A lot of people have strokes. He's on a path to recovery. No one is disputing that. Um, So what if, if he was blind? If he was deaf, mm-hmm. what if he was born without two arms? Or they say he can't sign legislation? Right. It's an attempt to disqualify someone because they don't really have any issues that they're running on. So Oz is really saying, you know, this person, it's, it's just an attack on a disease. It's an attack on someone that terrible happened to a person who's on a path of recovery. My question is, I know that Fetterman's going to recover from this stroke. What is, what is Dr. Oz going to recover right. from? It's not What's going to make him like a real person? It's not disqualifying. It's not prohibitive. And it borders on, on, on discrimination against the disabled. And so you're absolutely right. He can do everything we need him to do when he gets to the Senate. All right, friends. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice seeing you all. Next, doctors who say their employers are censoring their conversations on abortion. They are sharing the real-life impact it's having on patients coming to them for care. In our health lead, muzzled and shackled. That's what doctors anonymously tell CNN they are experiencing from their employers 
who won't let them explain the effects of abortion restrictions to patients and the public. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is digging into this. Elizabeth, what are these medical professionals saying? These doctors are telling us, John, that ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, things have been terrible. They have seen women suffer. They have seen women be close to death who needed abortions and who they couldn't help. They had to wait until they were on the brink of death. They had to watch these women deteriorate in front of their eyes. That's the phrase that one doctor used with me because they said they're not allowed to do abortions until the mother is on the brink of death. And these are cases where the baby wouldn't survive anyhow and that the mother's life is at stake and they can't give them the abortions that they need. And when a journalist calls and says, hey, can we talk to you about this? And they ask their hospital PR department, the PR department says, no, you can't. Or, well, you can talk, but you can't say that you work here. And they make them feel that if they do talk, that their jobs could be in jeopardy. So let's, uh, I want to read you a quote from one of these doctors. We spoke to uh, many of them. They all spoke anonymously. They're afraid of getting fired. Uh, this doctor says they're censoring me. It's shameful and embarrassing to work for an institution that is not supportive of women's rights. I'm extremely angry. It's disgusting. And John, I heard sentiments like that over and over again. John? Uh, Elizabeth, this is not exclusive to states where uh, strict limitations exist, is it? That's right. It's interesting. So if we look at the United States, there are 17 states where abortion is banned or severely restricted. But I spoke to doctors who were in states other than those 17 states. Some of them are in surge states. So they want to talk about what they're seeing, that they're getting all these patients coming in from other states needing abortions. They want to tell that story, right? This is a post-Dobbs story. They want to talk about this. And they have been told, well, we really would rather you didn't. But if you do, you can't use your work computer. Or if you do, you can't use your work email. And they say it's very clear to them that they are supposed to be shutting up. John? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. In jail for a crime he says he did not commit. Next, a notable pediatrician coming to his defense. And that doctor's son, who is someone you will recognize, is bringing much-needed attention to the case. Now our buried lead, where we highlight stories that don't get enough attention. It is an all-too-familiar story. A black man in jail for a crime he says he did not commit. This time, he's not alone in his cries of injustice. And facts back up his claims. His name? C.J. Rice, the man coming to his defense, Dr. Theodore Tapper, laying out the facts, our own Jake Tapper, Dr. Tapper's son, in a new must-read cover story in the Atlantic magazine. And Jake Tapper joins us now. Jake, your father was Rice's pediatrician, and he felt that his teenage patient could not physically commit the murders, the attempted murders he's now in jail for. Explain. Well, CJ, uh, when he was 17, was shot uh, in South Philadelphia, and he was rushed to the hospital and had a bullet removed from uh, his body. And about three weeks later uh, of a a pretty difficult recovery from that, uh, he staggered into my dad's office, uh, September 20th, I think was the day, 2011, and he could barely walk. Uh, he, he, he walked like a 95, 100-year-old man. Very, very difficult, short steps in a lot of pain. Uh, wasn't taking his painkillers because he didn't like how the Percocets made him feel. And then like six days later, uh, CJ got arrested for a different shooting. Um, and my dad, th- in which he, the, the suspects ran, 
And my dad thought that there was just no way he could have done this. And in fact, CJ and everybody in his family thought, well, this is obviously just a mistake. They, they can't charge him. He's not capable of committing this crime. But they charged him. And here we are uh, 11 years later, uh, and he's still in prison, and he's facing 30 to 60 years in prison for a crime. My dad, who is not a naive guy, I should point out, he understands that there are kids that do bad things. He just thinks physically he couldn't have done it. As you dug into the case, the facts of the case, what, what were the most striking discoveries? The most shocking thing was just how incompetent CJ's attorney was. Uh, all the things that she did not do, including apparently visiting the crime scene, uh, talking to any of the witnesses ahead of time, having basic rudimentary uh, knowledge of the case. And the fact that that is tolerated by our judicial system, which basically serves in many ways to protect itself. Uh, he did not get a fair trial. He did not get the trial that you or I would have been able to get. First of all, you or I would not have been charged with this crime. But if we had, we would have been able to uh, afford an attorney. Uh, CJ could not. He had a court-appointed attorney. They are not good, not as good as uh, public defenders at any rate. Uh, And he was not able to get justice. And since then, the system doesn't really have efficient, uh, fair ways for people to appeal such things. As you know, there have been different court cases where people have had drunk lawyers or lawyers who fell asleep or lawyers who were disbarred during the proceedings. And the judicial system in this country said, that's fine. That's OK. That's that's still a lawyer. It's a system that fails so many. And Jake, I know you're going to have much more on this later on CNN tonight. Thank you very much. Thank and you, I John. should say. Jake also has another big lineup beyond this on CNN tonight, ahead of tomorrow's big January 6th committee hearing. He's going to speak with Sarah Matthews. She was Donald Trump's deputy press secretary and resigned shortly after the insurrection. Also tonight, Jake interviews Anna Sorokin, the fake heiress who inspired the Netflix drama series Inventing Anna. That's all tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern right here on CNN. A Supreme Court case combines the likes of two artistic greats, Andy Warhol and Prince. Hear what a Supreme Court justice said about the case today. Next. In today's money lead, your heating bill is about to soar to record heights. A new report says U.S. households will likely spend more on energy bills this winter. If you use natural gas, your costs will rise about 200 bucks or 28 percent. And if it's more frigid than predicted, uh, you can plan to spend up to 51 percent more than last year. Why? Well, it's a combination of higher fuel prices and higher heating demand. The lesson here might be ask for thick socks this Christmas. All right. Pop art tops the pop lead. Art made by the man who famously held a mirror up to American consumerism. It is at the center of a Supreme Court case. Today, the nation's highest court heard arguments over if Andy Warhol's celebrated silk screens of the musician Prince violated copyright laws, a ruling that could impact generations of visual artists. Well, most of the arguments today, the oral arguments were technical. There were brief opportunities to learn more about the justices' artistic tastes. You've got to listen to this. Let's say that uh, I'm both a Prince fan, which I was in the 80s, and... um, No longer. (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, only on Thursday nights. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thursday nights at the Thomas household. Legal experts say that however the court rules, its decision will have rippling consequences for artists across the country. 
All right, you can follow me on Twitter at John Berman or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues right now with Wolf Blitzer, who is in the Situation Room. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.